Well, good morning, Mission Church. Good morning, Lancaster Campus. Good morning, Myerstown Campus. If you're fired up for God's Word, say amen. amen. Love it. Come on, pull out your Bibles. Turn them open with me to Numbers chapter 13. If you're new to church, if your Bible hasn't opened to this place recently, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Just open the front cover of your Bible and keep flipping. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You'll find the word Numbers at the top of the page. Keep flipping until you find the number 13. Uh, we're going to begin with verse 1 in Numbers chapter 13. Oh man, what a sight for me. I missed you all last Sunday. Uh, here's a confession. Is it okay for, your, for me to confess something to you last Sunday? I was super crabby uh, last Sunday afternoon, and um, not because the Lord wasn't good, not because I didn't have a chance to worship Him, but I wasn't able to be with you, and uh, we were sitting down for lunch, and Robin looked at me, and she goes, you're crabby, and I said, well, I don't like not being at our church right now, and uh, she said, well, meet with the Lord and get over it. Um, you'll be back next Sunday, <laughs> but I saw and I watched on as, once again, um, another one of our pastors, Pastor Nate Lott, opened God's Word so faithfully, uh, delivered God's Word with power and authority in Myerstown campus. Oh, to you, uh, what a grace uh, the Lord has given you uh, with providing Pastor Nate and Christina and their family to shepherd over your souls and how blessed I am to know and how blessed you should be to believe that no matter who is standing uh, at this pulpit, that it's not the voice, it's not the man, uh, it is the word of God, and it's the spirit of God that brings forth the truth of God uh, that trans transforms hearts. Is that true? Say amen. amen. Come on, that's true. So let's pray this morning and ask once again for God to do his work. Father, we thank you for the morning. We praise you for your grace and your goodness, and so now we humble ourselves again. Me first. Lord God, this morning, spirit low. Father God, help pride be swallowed, that your voice would resonate throughout this room. Father, that your Holy Spirit would do the work that you've promised to do, which is to illuminate truth, for to penetrate hearts, and so that lives could ultimately be transformed. God, more than anything today, we want to see people come to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. And for those who have come to know you as Savior, that our hearts will be strengthened by faith, May it happen today because your Holy Spirit is present here and because the truth of your word is delivered faithfully. Oh God, please let it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of Mission Church said? All right, here we are, Numbers chapter 13. We are in message number 14. 14! We have two more, uh, two more weeks to go. Well, that's actually not true. We have three weeks to go because we have a bonus Christmas message coming, obviously, on December 22nd. It will still be Courageous Calling, but it will be the Christmas edition. And then we'll come back on the 29th, and we will wrap up this 16-week series on the life of Moses. 19 chapters throughout the book of Exodus. The passage in Deuteronomy, and now here in Numbers, we are following along with this courageous calling that God had placed upon this simple man. The simple man who was full of fear, the simple man who lacked faith in the beginning, who God transformed to be one of the greatest leaders to ever step foot upon the face of the earth, Moses. And so this morning we pause again, for those of you who are new, reminding you of the premise of this particular series, and it's this, God has called you. God has called me. God has called each of us. Romans chapter 1 says he's called us indeed to obey his voice. It's the call of obedience that the conscience, on your conscience, is written the law of God. That deep down we would know right from wrong. And God calls us to obey him. Secondly, it's an effectual call. God calls us unto salvation. That's the moment where we bend our knee to the Lord. He transforms our hearts, and we become new men and women, new creations in Christ Jesus. And when he saves your soul, he then, we're told, has prepared good works in advance that we would walk in them. And so God has put a specific call on your life. Your vocation, your family, your daily choices, all of them, every moment of every day, you have a choice. Will you obey the call of the Lord upon your heart? 
So we've learned that what does this take? It takes trusting in the strength of God. Trusting in his providence, his purposes, his perspectives, his promises, his preeminence, his propitiation, his power, his provision, his battle plan, his peace, his purity, his patience, his presence. By the way, uh, two weeks ago, I went through all of those peas, and I said, man, we got the peas flowing, and apparently I lost half the room uh, whenever I said that. So those of you with a sense of humor that is not where it ought to be for Sunday morning, come on, get back with me. I know that I do have another pea this morning, and here it is. Some of you are like, I don't even get it. Good for you, by the way. <laughs> Seriously, good for you for not getting that. I didn't get it at first either. What's the problem? Oh, now I understand. Come on, today we find strength in God's persistence. In God's persistence. You're like, now you're getting way down in the category of the P words. Oh, no, I'm not. This word is perfect for the passage today. By persistence, we say this. We serve a God who is everlasting and unchanging, a persistent God, a God that the psalmist says this about. Psalm 102, the psalmist said this, God, you are the same. You are the same and your years, they have no end. Our God is perfect in his character. Our God is holy in his essence and by his grace and by his mercy, that will never change. Don't take my word for it. Hear this, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord says, I do not change. We're told this about Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday. He is the same today, and he will be the same forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. You see, God does not change. God does not change. God does not change. Say, does not change. God does not change. But God doesn't change. But man, whoo, do we change. And look, we can have some good change in our lives and we can have some negative change in our lives, but the bottom line is, in my life, it seems like one of the only constants that stands before me is this constant of change. Anyone with me on that? I mean, if you were just to stop this morning and count up how many times, uh, how many times you've changed your mind just this morning. Some of you are experiencing change right now. Maybe this church thing is new to you and this is a change. Maybe some of you set a goal and you set your alarm and you actually obeyed it this morning and you came to the 8.30 service. What a change. For me, one of the things that never, ever, ever stays the same is my appetite. Like food. Like my, my appetite can never, ever, ever make up its mind, right? Are you all with me on this? Check like, one of the, like the five most dangerous words in any relationship, I believe, are this. What are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? Any date that begins, men, come on, hear this. Any date that begins with you saying, what are you hungry for? Know this. Stop by the gas station on your way to wherever you're deciding to go to. Just this past Monday, Robin and I were going out for lunch, and it, it began just like that. What are you hungry for? I really believe we changed directions three times on the way to lunch. Change. Change. We see change. When change is on your mind, then you see change all around you. Apparently, my children have no idea what a favorite is. They've really lost the concept of favorite because every day their favorite changes. I would tell you that Ty's uh, favorite color is blue, except for it's black now, right? I would tell you that it's pink now, actually. And so you just go on. You have your favorite cereal. Hey, Mommy, Mommy bought you your favorite cereal. I don't even like that cereal anymore. The one place where I put my foot down on where change happens is uh, their favorite sports teams will always remain the same. <laughs> they are... Uh, they can have a secondary team that's free to change anytime they want it to change, but we will be blue and white. We will be black and gold. And those things, so long as they're under my roof, will remain the same. You see, some things don't change. <laughs> oh, yes, they do. If you're lacking, if you're lacking, if you're lacking any instances of change, don't do it now, but just maybe scroll through Facebook later. Like, that is a window. That is a window tracker of change. What you liked last year is not the same thing you thumbsed up this year. 
People who were griping yesterday about one thing are now griping about the other thing on the opposite side today. Here, how about this for change? How about this for change? Anybody, anybody with me? Like as you're scrolling through Facebook, you come across an old friend. And you're like, oh my word, they look so old. And then you're like, oh, they graduated with me. I look at myself in the mirror every day. Indeed, we've changed. In a world where the only constant seems to be change. In a world where conviction really does appear to be temporary. In a world where commitment is tempted at best. In a world that appears to be fickle in every way. Are you not glad that our God doesn't change? Are you not glad that in in his eternality he does not age? In his glory he never grows bored. And in his sovereign promises, his purposes will never be thwarted. Check this. Our God, the psalmist says, is a rock. Our God, he never grows tired, nor does he ever grow weary. He is the Lord everlasting God, the creator of the heaven and the earth. His understanding, no one, no one can search. But listen. This God who doesn't change, this God who is consistent in all of his power. This passage in Isaiah chapter 40 also goes on to say this. He gives that power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases their strength. And if we've seen anything throughout the life of Moses, it's this. Our unchanging God of strength, power, and faithfulness is willing to share that strength and power with those who trust in him. Amen? Just think about the God we've come to worship. Think about the God who we have been exploring throughout this story of Moses. This is the God that we serve. This God who graciously rescued Moses from the Nile is offering rescue to you. This God who boldly called Moses is the same God who's offering a call to you. This God who faithfully rescued his people, is calling out to you. This God who brought the plagues upon Egypt is still just as equally just today. I hear people say, I'm just so glad that God doesn't operate that way today. This God doesn't change. Trust me, his justice is being appeased somewhere, and it's in the work of Jesus Christ. The same God who miraculously split the sea is the same God we call upon to miraculously heal your soul and body. The same God who lovingly provided manna and quail for the people in the wilderness still provides for you. This same God who convincingly defeated the Amalekites through prayer will do the same in our day. The same God who authoritatively gives the law is just as authoritative now as he was then. The God who mercifully withheld his wrath when the people were worshiping an idol. Oh, that God doesn't burn us up on a Sunday morning when our attention drifts from him. Our God doesn't change. Our God doesn't change. He is patient with us. And the same God who marvelously revealed his glory to Moses is willing for his glory to be revealed to us. Friends, this is our God. This is our God. This is our God. And aren't you grateful that in his persistence, he does not change? And so in light of this, let me ask you this morning, are you ready to gain strength in God's persistence today? If you are, say, I am. Now say this, final answer. Well, you've learned so quick with that one. So say, say final answer. So you're not changing your mind. Awesome. Numbers chapter 13, here we go. Numbers chapter 13, let me catch you up on the timeline of where we are. Obviously from Exodus, then to Deuteronomy, now into Numbers. It's important for you to know the timeline. As you know, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. The Lord calls Moses to lead the people out. The journey from the time they left Egypt until they reached the base of the Mount Sinai was three months. Three months travel, not so bad. They actually, they proved to you what? 
This whole 40 years wandering thing, they could actually make pretty good time if they were on to something. Three months, it takes me three months just to get to my vacation spot with four boys. They're making time here. Exaggeration. So that means from Exodus chapter 14 through verse 18, that's three months worth of travel. So now they stay. They stay at the base of Mount Sinai from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers chapter 10. Did you hear that? From Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers chapter 10. All of that is happening at the base of Mount Sinai. They're going to stay, and they have now stayed at the base of Mount Sinai where God gave the law, where he gave the instructions for the tabernacle, where uh, he gave all the legislation for them to be gathered together under his authority, the Ten Commandments, and all of that for two years. So now in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, it says, The people get up and they set out toward the promised land, which indeed is the land of Canaan. And so now in Numbers chapter 13... Uh, this is the amount of time that's passed. They are just now, and they're in the land of Kadesh. They're just now south of the promised land. They are literally looking right into the promised land that God had promised. They're looking right over. You catch it? And by now, they should be ready. By now, they should be able to just enter right into the land. Lessons should have been learned. They have their leader. They have their freedom. They have the law to guide them. They have the tabernacle to worship their God. Everything is set, but unfortunately they have failed to learn the primary lesson that they should have learned in their study of Wilderness University. What was the degree that should have come out of Wilderness University? It's this. It's that their unchanging, everlasting, persistent God is worthy to be trusted. And so this morning, if we're going to gain strength in God's persistence, it's going to begin like this, trusting this God who doesn't change. This morning, finding strength in God's persistence is all about trust. Four ways that we come to trust the persistence of our God. Here's the first one. Today we will learn to trust the Lord by trusting that his promises will endure. By trusting that his promises will endure. You're like, I think we've heard this point somewhere along the series before. That's actually really good. That makes the point, does it not? That our God doesn't change. And the lessons in his word continue over and over and over again. And so once again, hear this. God's promises will endure. Look at the text. Numbers chapter 13. And so now the Lord said to Moses... The Lord said to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. This is a familiar story to people who've grown up in church. If you haven't grown up in church, you will catch on to the story very fast. This indeed is the story of the ten spies. So the Lord said to Moses, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of your fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. All right, so here it comes. Pop quiz. Pop quiz. Who is giving who the land? All right, who is giving who the land? Who does the land belong to? Lift up your voice. God, all right? God, God, God. The land ultimately belongs to God. Who is God giving the land to? This is not, this is not a difficult quiz at all. Myerstown, I need your participation as well. Who is God giving the land to? Lift up your voice. Israel. And so now what stands in front of these 12 men whom God has called out? They indeed themselves are embarking on a quiz, if you will, a test of their own. And the test that they are embarking on the quiz, if you will, that they are receiving is indeed as simple as the one that you and I just took. Who does the land belong to? God. Who's giving who the land? God is going to give the land to Israel. And so here we are, 12 guys, step up, or called up, if you will. What follows in the next 16 verses or so are the name of those men, only two you remember, and there's a reason for that. Look at verse 17. 
And so Moses sent them out to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is. Whether the people who dwell there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. But whatever you do, men, hear this, be of good courage. Be of good courage and bring back some fruit. Bring back some fruit of the land. Stop by Wegmans and pick up some produce. That's not what it says. Now the time was the season for the first ripe grapes. All right, come on. So I read that. Hopefully you're with me on this. I'm not the only one whose brain is like, my heart is triggered. Go up and see. Go up and see how big the people are. Who cares? Go up and see whether they're living in cities or whether they're living in camps. Who cares? Go up and see if they're rich or if they're poor. Who cares? What does it matter? The quiz is so incredibly simple. God has already given them the answer. But here's my question. My question is this. If God has already said, I'm going to give you the land. If God has already said it's flowing with milk and honey. If God has already described the land. If God has already promised the land. Why in the world would God send them out? Why would God say to Moses, call up these 12 men so that they can go and do what? Test whether I've said the truth or not? What stands before these 12 men is an opportunity. Why would God do this? Well, because he's gracious. And because God is actually obliging the request of the nation. Which you don't realize from this text, but what is it crystal clear from Deuteronomy chapter 1, where Moses recounts the story from another detail. He says this, listen, listen. Moses, recounting to the nation, said this, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Verse 21 of chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, it's on the screen. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Let's go up and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. Sound familiar? Verse 22, look, look, look. Then, then when God said that, all of you came near to me and said what? Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and that they may bring us word again on the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. You catch it? God says, hey, I'm going to give you the land. It's full with milk and honey. I'm going to give it to you. Go in there. Just conquer it. It's all good to go. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. But before we just kind of march out of here, God, can we send some people up there? Before we take you at your word, can we get some eyes on that? And so they come to Moses, and Moses goes to God, and God says, well, all right. All right. They want to go check out the land? Let's have them, let's have them go check out the land. But I'm telling you, what lies before them is both an opportunity and a liability. What stands before them is an opportunity and a liability. How so? Friends, sometimes it's easier not to know. Come on, anybody been there? Sometimes it's easier not to know. Now, I'm not saying stick your head in the sand. I'm not saying ignorance is bliss. That's not my point. But what I am saying is faith is the assurance of things unseen. Faith is the ability to act upon the promises in the word of God without you having to know everything before you step out. You ever experienced this in your life? Many of you know um, kind of a personal story from Robin and I's history. And I 
don't mean to overshare on this story, but its application to our lives comes up so often in my spiritual pursuit. And that was when we learned that our first son was born with a congenital heart defect. Many of you are aware of this story, but just hear it again for the sake of this application. It was enough for us to learn that his chest was going to be operated on by a surgeon. It was enough for us to know that this was a risky procedure. I remember when we sat down with the doctor and remember when he laid, when I shook his hand, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, his hand was double the size of any gorilla I'd ever seen. And I remember thinking to myself, this man's going to operate on the walnut-sized heart of my son? And I remember thinking to myself, Lord, are you sure? And I remember the doctor's words essentially is this, if we don't do the surgery, he is not going to live. I remember receiving at least this comfort. This surgeon, as big as his gorilla hands may be, is the greatest, one of the greatest surgeons in the country in pediatric cardiology. You know what? That is plenty of information. Right now, I'm good. I'm good. What do I need to do? I don't want to do this, but listen, I don't need any more details. But apparently the law thinks otherwise. If I don't do this, he's not going to live. You are the best we got. Please. But instead what followed was an hour-long presentation of everything that could possibly go wrong. Every liability that needed to be covered. So in case something did go wrong, we would have been forewarned. When you got the best doctor in the land, I don't need any more details. When you got the God of heaven promising you what's going to go down next, you don't need anything else. When God tells you it's his, and when God tells you he's going to give it to you, it's done. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes less is more. And sometimes, here's the deal, the more information you have, the greater faith you now have to put forth. What they were actually asking for is this, God, I want to see the backside of this miracle for myself. I want to see the inner workings of what exactly you're going to do for us. And then I'm going to weigh whether we really want to trust you for this or not. Trust me, I do not want to be in that surgical room when it went down. Where do we want to be? On our knees in prayer, by faith, trusting that God is going to deliver on his promises. Take your step and move. Their eyes now become fixated upon the details. Their eyes become fixated on the problem that is before them rather than the power of God that will overcome it. The obstacles rather than the object of their faith. The loss that they may endure rather than the love of the God, their Father, who said he would. And how often do we do this ourselves? So God lets them go. Look at what they find. Chapter 13, verse 21. And so they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Roab near Labohamath. They went up into the Negev and they came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shishia, Telemiah, the descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Verse 23. And they came to the valley of Eshkol, and they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it. How big was the cluster of grapes? It was so big, they put a pole, and two people had to carry this cluster of grapes home. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That's a good shopping trip right there. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol. 
Why? Because the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. And so what did they go and what did they see? What did they find out? The land was exactly like God said it would be. And so now they come, they come back to the, they come back to the, the nation. They come back to Moses and the people. Look at verse 25. Now look, look, look. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. And they're like, we got some really good news. Good news and actually some bad news. All right, let's start with the good news because it's hard for us to hide it. It's hanging over here on a pole. Need to be carried by two men. Look at this. Look at the good news. They brought back word from them that all of the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. Look at the size of these grapes, guys. Man, I love pomegranates. They probably didn't do it in that voice. That was a little southern twang in there. But And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us, and I'm telling you, Moses, it flows. It flows with milk, and it flows with honey, and this right here, this is its fruit. Go figure. It's exactly like God said it would be. Well, enjoy the grapes, fellas. Enjoy the pomegranates, ladies. Most guys don't have patience to open those things anyway. Because that might be all we get. Look at verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified, and they're very large. And besides that, we, found, we saw the descendants of Anak there. By the way, these Anak, these were big old people. Like, some regard them as the size of giant-type folks. Just big old people compared to the, to the Jews. And now, now watch, watch, watch. Verse 29, I told the staff this week, like, when I read the first two words of verse 29, like, my stomach actually was filled with disgust. And the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are there. Are you kidding me? You're concerned about the Amalekites? Y'all remember what happened to the Amalekites? They got their tails whipped already. Whenever Moses' hands were held up. And they prayed and the Lord prevailed. They sent those guys packing home. And now they make the list of reasons why you're not going to trust the Lord to go into the promised land? Are you kidding me? How many battles has God won for you? But the next time the battle comes up, you're thinking to yourself, again? He beat the Amalekites, but man, look who else dwells there. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, they all dwell. They all dwell there and amongst the Jordan. And so here's the test. Now they know. Here's the test. You can't unknow what you now know. It's God's land. It's filling with milk and honey, just like he said it would be. He said he was going to give it to you, but now you know exactly what giving it to you is going to take. Now you see, indeed, the backside of the miracle. Now you have to decide, what do you really believe? Do I believe God in faith, or am I going to believe in the doubt and fear that is now inside my heart as I look on to this? The battle exists right here, friends, and exists right here in this room amongst us as well. The battle is in our hearts. The battle is in our minds. The battle is in our soul. And it's a battle of faith. It's a battle of belief. And are we going to believe on the calling and the promises of God? Or are we going to allow the voices of doubt and fear to keep us as well from enduring and persevering and pressing in and claiming the promises that God has for us? Do you have an opportunity of faith in your life right now? Do you have a battle that you're in the midst of? Hear this, every blessing that comes your way, 
every challenge that you face, every yes, every no, it is an opportunity. Please come see life. See each moment. See each second as an opportunity where this is the decision that rests before you. Trusting God in faith or allowing the indulgences of your flesh, the doubt and the fear to take you another way. Ultimately, what stands before them and what stands before us is the opportunity to trust the Lord. Friends, this is a battle that never ends. For if you said yes yesterday, you have to say it again. And the call of obedience before the Lord. When you let down your guard and it comes again, that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit's presence in us at all times. And you guys know the story. Some of you know the story. For those of you who don't, watch what happens next. The people go berserk. They begin to freak out. You can imagine the hustle, the bustle, and the chatter, and the clamor. Two guys settle down the camp. Look at verse 30. But Caleb, but Caleb, but Caleb, oh, in the midst of chaos, would you not love for the faithfulness of God to work through you that your name could follow that word? But Caleb, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us, come on, what's the problem? Come on, let's go up there at once. Let's go occupy the land, for we are well able to overcome this land. You see what Caleb knew is this. Not only do God's promises endure, but his power is endless. Point two, his power is endless. And if you are going to gain strength in God's persistence, you've got to believe. If he promises to do something, it's done. And then the power to accomplish that work is endless, and he will fulfill it in you. I love this. Caleb's like, really? What are y'all worked up about? Ten others disagree. Two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, they're like, no problem, let's go. Ten others disagree. By the way, the two are outvoted, two thumbs up, ten thumbs down. The majority can be wrong, be careful. So much more I could say about that, but probably get in big trouble. Verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, really, for they are stronger than we are. And so they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we had gone in to spy it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. I'm telling you right now, we go in there, they're going to have us for lunch. And all the people we saw in it are great. They're of great height. That's like three-quarters of the people I meet. <laughs> and they saw the Nephilim. Oh, the great mystery around the Nephilim. That's another sermon. Oh, I was like, oh. They were tall. That's, what, that's it. That's it. That's all you need to know. They were big. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. All the reasons they're bigger. All the reasons they're stronger. All the reasons they're richer. All the reasons their cities are fortified. All the reasons. And Caleb's like, yo, we're grasshoppers? Come on, let's hop to it. It's just a dad joke. Come on. And so while the people raise up a loud cry, Caleb's like, come on. Stop it. Just stop it. Do we really need to rehearse all that God has done? Then the congregation raised out a loud cry and the people wept that night 
Isn't it amazing how fear has a power over us? What a thief fear and anxiety is in our lives, how it robs us of things that God promises, how it robs us of the security that we long for, how it even takes from us the sleep that we so desperately need. And so they wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Come on, we should have just died. Oh, that we would just die in this wilderness right now. Mark that. You see, they're grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against Aaron. But here's the depth. Here is the core of all of our grumbling every time. This is nothing new. We've covered it before. But here it is. Here's the heart of grumbling. Why is the Lord You can grumble against your wife, put the Lord's name in its place. Lord, why? You can grumble at your kids, put the Lord's name in its place. Ultimately, all grumbling is against the Lord. This is why. Why is it it that the Lord would bring us to this land just to fall by the sword? Watch this gaslighting to Moses. Watch this manipulation. And our wives and our little ones, they will become prey as well. If you want to win any argument, just bring in the children. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They realize they can't fire God, so they try to give Moses his pink slip instead. These people are in a bad place. Man, have they forgotten. The ten plagues, the Red Sea, the man of the water, the battles won, the mountains shook, the law given, the 3,000 people who lay dead, disobedient, and worshiping the calf. Have they forgotten all of this? It's in these moments that we shake our heads and we say, really? How is this possible? And then we remind ourselves, what about about us? How many victories have we seen God perform in our lives, but yet we doubt him again? Come on, church, look around. Come on, Myerstown campus, look around. We're here. We're here. God has preserved, God has grown, God has protected when many doubted. God provides us a place of worship when it didn't look like there was ones to be found. And he's not done. Friends, look at your own life. Think about what the Lord has done in your life. Literally, in this room, lives have been saved. Literally, snatched from the jaws of death because what God has done in your life. Families restored. Children entrusted, jobs secured, successes achieved, prodigals have returned home. Many more are being prayed for. Addictions have been broken. Come on, church, catch this. God has done that, and he is not done. There is more, there is more, there is more. God can do it again. Whatever battle lies before you, you need to hear this this morning. God can do it again. He can do it again. And when he's done doing that, he can do it again. And I just ask myself, where does this live? What is it inside of me that causes me to doubt the goodness of the Lord in my life over and over and over again? Maybe you can relate like me that I, I honestly believe in my heart of hearts that I don't, I don't question the power of God. I don't think. I don't think I question the goodness of God. I really don't think I question the goodness of God necessarily. I think if I were truly honest with you, what I would say is I question why God would want to waste his power in use his goodness again on me. After what I know about myself and the failures in my life, why why would God do that again? I don't question the goodness of God. I question why he would want to do it for me. 
I don't think I'm alone in this. And friends, this is exactly what Israel is doing. They're comparing. They're comparing, and they're looking on, and they're looking at the obstacle that stands before them, and they're looking at their own self, and they're saying, we're too weak. We're too frail. We're too unorganized. We don't have it all together. And why would God waste his goodness once again on us? Friends, don't miss this. The sin in this passage is that they are not believing and they are not trusting in the unchanging, merciful goodness and power of their God in their lives. Listen, here you have God's chosen people who have audibly heard God's promise doubting his power. Now hear this, it's a sin to project our weakness upon God. It is a sin to evaluate ourselves and then project our weakness upon God. We do God no favors by putting ourselves down and comparing ourselves and then questioning God's willingness to keep his promises over us. Listen, it is wrong for us to think less of ourselves as believers in Christ than God says we are. It is wrong for us to think less of ourselves than God says we are. Some of you in this room need to hear this again. It is wrong for you to think of yourself as less than God says you are. If you've trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are a redeemed child of God. And this holy God, this perfect God, hear this, his purity is eternal and he will act upon his goodness. Point three. We need to trust. We need to trust in God's promises and door. We need to trust that his power is endless. We need to trust that God's purity is eternal. And in this purity, let us just note this, it is a sin to doubt the goodness of the Lord. And this is the sin that Israel is committing, and this is the sin that presses upon the purity of God. And so they come, and they complain, and they complain, and they complain. Verse 7 now, Verse 5, Moses and Aaron realize how big of a deal this is. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation, the people of Israel. They repent immediately for other people's actions. Verse 6, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes too. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which has passed through to spy it out is exceedingly good land. Come on. They try to talk some sense into them. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. Listen, listen. Remember what the spies said? They'll eat us. What's, what's Caleb say? What are you talking about? They are bread to us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord, Yahweh, God, Adonai, he is with us. Don't fear them. Fear God. Then all the congregation, watch, watch. Then all the congregation said, stone them with stones. They're about to commit murder. But you understand like how this thing is spiraled out of control. They fire their leader. They reject their God. And all we got is four faithful people left. And they're about to murder the only faithful people left. You understand the context? You understand why God's about to get fired up here? Here's what I don't want you to miss. Verse 10, look at verse 10 again. 
Then all the congregation said, stone them with stones. But watch, watch, watch. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? And in spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them. I will strike them with pestilence. And I will disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Does this sound familiar? Hint, Mount of Sinai. We are right back at the base of Mount Sinai. But what triggers God's holiness this time? What triggers God's justice this time? His glory comes and stands between the savages who are about to murder his faithful men and said, you will not touch these people of faith. You will not touch those who are obediently falling after me. You will not touch. You see it? And it's one thing for God to say to them that I will fight you. I will fight on your behalf against your, your enemies. It's another thing to say, I will even protect you amongst my own chosen people. Come on, church. Better take note of this. Friendly fire is the worst fire. But even in this, God has a word. Even in this, God takes action. And so he's, Moses does what he did before, and he cries out to God, and he prays, and he just pleads with God, please, God, please, God, won't you? Please, God, don't wipe them out. Verse 20. After this prayer, much like the same prayer of the Mount of Sinai, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Once again, the Lord, the Lord pardons. The prayer of a, of a righteous man prevaileth much. And the Lord says, I will forgive. And indeed, he does forgive. But don't miss this. Even in his forgiveness, Hebrews says this, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so they are forgiven. They're going to live another day for sure. But they are not. You know what happens next, right? They're not going to see the promised land. We got to move. Hang with me. I've pardoned them. Verse 22. None of them will see my glory. None of them who have seen my glory and my signs that I did will enter the land. Verse 24, though, but check this. But my servant Caleb... But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and he has followed me fully, I will bring into the land in which we went and the descendants he shall possess. How's your spirit? Well done. Oh, how we long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 30, Caleb and Joshua, they will enter. Verse 31, check verse 31. God's got one more thing for sure that he wants to make clear now now about the children that you were concerned that i was going to neglect about the children that you tried to manipulate moses with but your little ones who you said would become a prey i will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. You think God's making a point? I think God's making a point. I'm telling you, friends, he is holy. He is unchanging. He is persistent. He is full of grace, but he's also full of justice. Here is the point. Don't mess with our God. Don't mess with the Lord. He is merciful. He is patient. He is full of grace. And in this day, because of the work of Jesus Christ, his wrath was poured out upon the Son so that you would not have to endure the wrath of God. But what must we do? Confess and believe and invite the presence of God into our lives, into our hearts. How does that happen? By faith, by repentance, which is the final point. We need to trust God's presence. We need to trust that God's presence is essential. Because if this story couldn't end any weirder, verse 39. So the Lord tells Moses to deliver this message. They're not going in. They're all going to die in the wilderness. And they're like, oh, I guess God must mean business. 
Moses says this to them. Look at verse 40. And so they're like, oh, wait, 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 wait. We didn't realize all this was going to go down. And so they rose up early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord had promised, for we have sinned. What? Yeah, we're just going to go into the promised land. Now we get it. We get God's point. Somehow they thought their whiny sorry was going to be enough. Somehow they thought this just a little bit of a, okay, we get the point, let's do an about face, we don't like this pain anymore, was going to be enough. And Moses says, guys, I'm telling you, why, why are you, why are you just resting the command of the Lord? You disobeyed him by not going in, now you're going to disobey him by going in. When that will, that's not going to happen. Verse 42, do not go up for the Lord is not among you. You don't have his presence, don't go. Lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there are the Amalekites, the Canaanites, all those things you were worried about before, I'm telling you, they actually are a problem without God. All the things you fear are worthy of fear without God. That's the point. That's what makes God's provision so miraculous and so glorious and so good. But look, look, look. For there, there, all these people are there, but because you have turned your back from the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. That is the greatest, that is the greatest failure of this text. Worse than death in the wilderness is that the presence of God is not gonna go with them here. But look at verse 44, they presumed. Oh, the blight of every generation is the presumption on God. Oh, how we presume upon God. We presume upon the Lord. And they presume to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant nor the Lord nor Moses was with them. And no surprise, verse 45, and the Amalekites and the Canaanites, Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them. And they devoured them. God promised. They presumed. God's promises endure. To his forefathers, they said they would go in. God's power, it is endless. It was there for them to receive, but they rejected it. God's purity is the same today. He is full of grace, but he's also full of justice. He's willing to extend his grace to you. But finally, friends, note this. His presence is essential. Hear me, church. There is another promised land over the horizon. There is another promised land yet to come. And yes, indeed, he does. He does, he does speak of a heaven that will be experienced by the church of Christ. But if you don't receive his presence on this side, if you don't receive his presence on the wilderness of this earth, there is no going in. His presence is essential. And some of us, some of us like the nation, what have we done? We are striving on our own strength. We are striving without the presence of God in our lives. We've not invited the power of the Lord. We're not trusting in the purity of him. And we are striving towards heaven. And I'm telling you, friends, hear me. There's no entry without the presence of Christ. And so the question is, how do we invite the presence of the Lord into our lives? First, by answering this, do you have the presence of the Lord in your life? The scriptures say that the Lord is willing to inhabit the hearts of those who put their faith and their trust in him. The scripture says that God actually does reside inside the hearts of men, but here's the problem. You and I, our hearts are filled with sin. And because he's holy, he can't be in the presence of sin. So how then does the presence of God come into a sinful heart? Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of our sin. 
And just as we learned in the Moses story, when the blood that covered over the doorpost, that the wrath of God would pass over the nation, when the blood of Christ is covered over your heart, the wrath of God passes over and the presence of Christ dwells within your soul. And the scripture says you are a brand new creation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died, that he rose again, that he sits in heaven and he did this for you and you repent of your sin. His presence is with you and you will become a brand new creation right now. And so Father, we come to you. We bow our hearts humbly before you, believing, Lord God, just as you've been faithful in the past, Lord God, you will be faithful again. Father, in this room are those who are striving after life without your presence. And God, I pray that we would learn the lesson of the Israelites, that we would not strive after eternity without you. Father, we can't earn our way to heaven. We confess our sins to you now. Even those who've confessed their sins before, we confess them to you again. God, we are unworthy of your presence. Oh, but how we long for it. Father, every person in this room, eternity is written on their hearts and they long for heaven. But here today, they've heard from your word how they can be there. Father, it's through the presence of Christ. And so now we confess our sins. We ask your son to forgive us. And then, Lord God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us in obedience from here, Lord God, believing that that which you've done before, you will do again. We trust you. We praise you in Jesus' name.